Matthew, that's where we're going to be in the Gospels. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Have you ever read the Gospels before? Hopefully, yeah. No heads nodding. Uh, I have. And when I read the Gospels, every once in a while, I, I bump up against things that I say, wow, <laughs> what's Jesus talking about? That's kind of uh, difficult to understand. There are actually books written about the hard sayings of Jesus. What in the world is he talking about? I want to uh, illustrate this for you with just a couple of them. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16 is one that's always been a little challenging for me. Someone came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And we stop right there and we say, I got that one, okay? Because I know the gospel. I've memorized the four laws and the bridge illustration and all that kind of stuff. So, Jesus, I can handle this one. Believe. Believe in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and you have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But wait, that's not what Jesus says. What does he say? Jesus said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. What a, we just studied Galatians. Jesus, have you never read Paul? Man, that sounds like legalism to me. Then he said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not uh, commit adultery. You shall not steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There you go. That's it. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept. Am I lacking anything else? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Surely Jesus is at least speaking in hyperbole, right? He just means 10%. But I, I would, if you know, Jesus asked me, I'd give him everything so I could have eternal life. Is, is Jesus saying that if you really want to have eternal life, you have to give away absolutely everything you possess? Would you even be willing to do that? Is that what he's saying? Well, you know, it actually gets worse than that. If you're reading the Sermon on the Mount, he goes through this entire exposition of the law, you know, keeping the commandments. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And then he gets to the summation, and his summation is this. You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, man, that does not sound like very good news to me. Just as God the Father is absolutely perfect and holy and moral and righteous in every respect, if you want eternal life, that's all you have to do. Wow. That's a little bit confusing to put all those things together, but at least I know who I should tell about it, right? Because the Great Commission says, take the gospel to all nations, right? All ethne, all people groups. But wait, turn to Matthew chapter 10 and verse 5. Matthew 10, verse 5, Jesus has collected his 12 disciples. He's begun to train them. Now he's going to commission them and send them out. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the ethne, the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. No, take the message and just take it to the Jews. Wait a second, Jesus, Matthew 28 says, take it to all nations, and here you're saying, no, just take it to the Jews. Look at Matthew chapter 15, verse 22. A Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, 
Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he ignored her. He did not even answer her a word. And his disciples came to him and implored him, saying, Jesus, have mercy on her. Love this woman. Tell her the truth of the gospel. Now, they never say that. (laughs) What do they say? Get rid of her. She's, She's annoying. She's embarrassing us. And we're trying to have a quiet moment here with you, Jesus. He answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Has that ever bothered you at all? Does that sound like Jesus, the Jesus that you know? Jesus says some things that are really difficult to understand. This semester, we're going to be looking at the teachings of Jesus. And in order to really understand Jesus, we have to put his teachings in context. A couple things that we're going to have to do this semester. One is we're going to have to really focus on key words. Because words have meaning in context. And probably one of the most important words for us to study in the Gospels is the word gospel. What is the word gospel? What does it mean? I'm going to illustrate it for you in a couple ways. I'm going to take you back to the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where the word gospel is used. 1 Samuel chapter 31. Says the next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the gospel. <laughs> well, if you're Saul and his sons, that's not very good news, is it? For the Philistines, it was great news. Okay, gospel just means simply good news, so in the context you gotta decide. Good news for whom? What kind of good news? What's he talking about? Okay, but gospel simply means good news. Another illustration from Isaiah. I like this one better. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news or gospel of happiness. That's better than heads getting cut off and stuff. He announces salvation. Who says to Zion, your God reigns, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. That is, God's going to fulfill his covenant promises, restore us to the land, give us all the covenant blessings. I like that gospel better. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, this is what we think of. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. When we think gospels, a lot of times we get locked into just this. Jesus died, he was buried, he rose from the dead. If you believe in him, you have the debt of your sin removed forever and you possess eternal life. When Jesus shows up on the scene and he begins to preach, it says he begins to say, here is the gospel of the kingdom. Was Jesus talking about his death and burial and resurrection to all the multitudes? No. He didn't go out in the countryside and proclaim that he would die. Because if he did, no one would have ever listened to him. But he was still preaching good news. What was the good news that Jesus preached? Well, you know, we have a good sense of the gospel according to Paul. That is, Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. Believe and you possess eternal life. The gospel according to Jesus is basically, Jesus is now coming and he is the embodiment of the fulfillment of all of God's promises that he has previously made. And he is in the process of fulfilling all of those promises. He is the culmination. 
But to understand Jesus' teachings, we have to put him in context. Words have meaning in context. So we've got to study the context. Context of the Gospels, well, Gospels are set within the entire Bible. I want to encourage you this year to read your entire Bible. Cover to cover, I want to encourage you to make it a habit. Maybe you don't get through it in a year. Maybe it takes you two years, but you're just reading it for the rest of your life. You just start in Genesis, go all the way to Revelation. My favorite way to do that is to do it chronologically. You can get online and find a chronological listing of the events of the Bible. So it's got Psalms interspersed in Samuel and Kings and this, this kind of thing, but it kind of maps out for you. Here's the story of the Bible. You start at one end, read to the other. Okay? The more you do that, you do that for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, you're going to have a sense of this is the story of the Bible. Okay? We've got to understand that. It's one united story, 66 books, but really one book. The entire book that we're studying, if we're looking in Matthew, what's the context within Matthew and, and maybe just that story within Matthew itself that we're looking at or Luke or John. We also have to understand the world of the author and the audience, the language that was spoken, the culture, what's happening historically all around them. God's uh, progressive flow of history as he is redeeming all of mankind and setting all of things right. Where are we? You know, a lot of times we just flip open our Bible, we start to read and we say, man, thank you, Lord, for that promise to me. What is he even talking to you? You have to know where you are in the whole flow of biblical history. Got to have context. I want to give you a, a real earthy, simple illustration of this. Okay? Imagine that you just moved uh, from Texas to a foreign country. You just moved to Canada. Right? It's just a radical culture shift. You know, so they sort of speak English, but not really. And you're, you're up in Canada, right? And you turn on your radio, and this is what you hear. On Wednesday, the penguins traveled north to the Habs barn. The Habs keeper was a sieve, allowing the pens to go seven hole four times. Stoppage occurred just one time for chucking the knuckles when Sid the Kid lost his lid and ended up with a concussion. The offending cement head found himself in the sin bin with a double major. The rest of the time, Sid camped out in Gretzky's office, feeding the biscuit to the high slot, along with lighting the lamp two times unassisted. Makes perfect sense, right? Okay, if you're Canadian, you know, does anybody, does anybody know what I'm talking about there? Hockey. Bless you. Okay. Now, even you know it's hockey, right? But maybe you don't know all the terms. But if you're if you're Canadian or if you live anywhere along the north, you understand exactly everything that's just said in there. And so that you will be indoctrinated into the greatest sport on earth. I'm going to decipher this for you a little bit. Okay. The Penguins aren't Penguins. It's a hockey team. Okay. Pittsburgh Penguins. They traveled north to the Hab. The Habs are, are the Montreal Canadiens. That was my favorite team growing up. They're called the Habs. A barn is another name for an ice arena. The Habs keeper, that's the goalie, was a sieve. If a goalie's having a really bad time and he's letting in a lot of goals, we would call him a sieve, you know, because sieve lets everything in. We'd actually literally sometimes you'd bring sieves with you to the game, and if goalie's having a bad time, throw them out on the ice. It's really fun. It's a very participatory thing. You can't throw things onto a football field. But the ice, you just throw stuff on. They, they throw on squids and all kinds of stuff, depending on where you are. So he's a sieve. He's letting everything in. It went seven hole four times. Seven holes this right here. Goalie holds a stick. He's got a blocking pad. Seven holes this little hole right here. Okay, it goes in right there. Um, stoppage occurred just one time for chucking the knuckles. That's kind of obvious, isn't it? That's a great analogy, though. I like that's a good part of hockey. Sid the Kid. He is uh, Sidney Crosby, one of the up and coming stars. Uh, great player. 
He lost his lid. That's his helmet. They make him play with helmets now. And he got a concussion. The offending cement head, that's a goon or a tough guy. Every team has it, a, a goon or a tough guy who's just kind of trying to intimidate the other team. And he goes out and he picks fights. That's what he does. That's his job. He doesn't have to be a great skater. Okay? He found himself in the sin bin. That's the penalty box. Okay? Isn't that a great name? It's the sin bin with a double major. That's two five-minute penalties. That's not good. The rest of the time, Sid camped out in Gretzky's office. Now, you, need to, you have to have watched hockey for a long time. Wayne Gretzky is maybe the greatest player that ever lived. And he was phenomenal at, on the offensive end, holding the puck behind the net. And he would feed players out in front. You know, high slot up high, low slot right in front of the net. He's feeding the biscuit. That's the puck to the high slot, along with lighting the lamp every time you score a goal. Lamp goes on, unassisted two times. So now you know all about hockey. Okay. But you may have walked in here and you say, what in the world? I, I don't have, is that English? You know, I don't have the context for that. Well, the Bible is the same thing. It's written in a different language. We've got it translated. Okay. We've got we to get the context. So when I'm talking about context, what I'm saying is Jesus came at a unique time to a particular group of people. And sometimes this shocks us, but he didn't come to us, right? He didn't come in the 21st century speaking American, right? He didn't come to us. The church didn't exist yet. There was no New Testament yet. There was no America yet. So that means there was no Texas A&M, gasp. There were no Aggies yet, right? When Jesus came and spoke, he's speaking a different language. He's speaking into a different culture. It doesn't mean that the gospels are irrelevant to us. There's great application, but we've got to understand first, what is he saying to that immediate audience, which was first century Jews? Okay, first century Jews. What is their history? What is their language? What is their culture? And I think in some respects, most importantly, what are their expectations See, a Jew in the first century identified himself or herself primarily as a child of Abraham. Okay, everything that they understood about their present situation and their future hope was tied to the promises that God had made. So they saw themselves as God's covenant people. God had given promises to his people in the form of four covenants. Okay, we looked briefly at each of these when we went through our study of Galatians last semester, right at the beginning, we laid this as the foundation because all of Jewish understanding was based upon these covenants. I would recommend to you that in the back of your Bible, you write down each of these covenants and you jot some notes of significant scripture passages for each of these covenants because I promise you, you cannot understand your Bible. You can't even understand the epistles that are written to the church if you don't understand the promises that were made to Israel because those promises were made to Israel but for all nations, okay? The first was the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12 is the first place that this is spoken. If you want to turn there and maybe write down this reference, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, we should stop right there for a minute. Abram didn't know the Lord. He didn't know Yahweh. He had been 
a worshiper of gods, small g, false gods. In Ur of the Chaldees, he had been an idolater. And then Yahweh, the Lord, came and introduced himself to Abraham. And he made Abram some promises. He says, first, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. That is, people will come from you. You will have children, and from your children there will be children. And he tells him later, there will be so many children, it'll be like the stars of the heavens or the sand of the seashore, just too many to number. And I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. In you, Abraham, my blessing will go out to all people. And later he will begin to explain to Abram and other generations that blessing is both physical and it's also spiritual. Abram, you and through you, I will accomplish ultimately my plan to restore what was broken in the garden so that men and women are restored to relationship with me. They're restored to relationship with one another. They're also restored to their relationship with all of creation. All of creation is going to be set right through you. Abraham was the plan. This promise made Abraham. And so this is an everlasting promise, but it hasn't been fulfilled yet. And that's key to understand. When the Jews thought about themselves and their history and their future, they realized God's promises haven't been fulfilled yet, but they are everlasting. So we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. God, when will you fulfill them? Second covenant that he gave to them was the Mosaic covenant. If you want to write it down, Deuteronomy 28 through 30, that's a good summary of the Mosaic covenant. Remember from our study in Galatians, we said that the Mosaic covenant did not take the place of the Abrahamic covenant. Paul says it's added alongside. So each generation could know, how can our generation enjoy these promises that God made if we obey the law? Okay? And if we obey the law, we're going to experience blessing. If we disobey the law, God's going to curse us or discipline us. And if we keep disobeying, he's going to discipline us more and more. And eventually he might even remove us from the land. But there is hope that eventually if we repent and obey the law, he'll bring us back onto the land. The problem with the Mosaic Covenant, as Paul pointed out to us last semester in Galatians, is there's no power. Okay? The standard is set. But there's no power to obey because they were not indwelt by the Spirit. But there's still the hope that one day God will empower them so that they can obey and they can receive the blessings. I put my slides out of order last night, so let me, I'm going to pop down here one, real quick one second. I want to read to you Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1. It says, so it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, And you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you. And so you remember, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom were both exiled. They're taken off the land. And in their exile, God speaks to them and they repent And some of them travel back to the land, 
And they begin to rebuild, and they rebuild the temple, but they struggle a bit, and they don't get it finished. And then prophet comes and motivates them, and they build some more. And then they build the walls, but they don't quite get finished, and they're oppressed by enemies. And they finally get the walls finished, and they're trying to worship, but they're struggling in the land. Okay? That's the setting when we look at the New Testament. Let's go back here. Okay? Third covenant is the Davidic covenant. Davidic covenant told them, Who's going to rule over us in such a way to lead us to obedience of the Mosaic law so that we can receive the promises made to Abraham? 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to write that down and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 8. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 8. Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. Remember that cycle in Judges, they're always getting oppressed by enemies. God says, I'm going to send you a king, a ruler, who will lead you to victory so your enemies don't bother you any longer. Even from the day that I commanded judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you, David. That is, you will have descendants. When your days are complete and you lie down down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house or a temple, a place of worship for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That is, he will have authority and he will have a realm. He will have a people. I'll be a father to him. He will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loyal love shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. And your throne shall be established forever. There will always be a Davidic king reigning on the throne. When Jesus came and he began to preach the kingdom of God, was there a Davidic king on the throne? No. Herod was their king. Herod was not racially a Jew. Herod was an Idiomaean. That is, he was a descendant of Edom or Esau. He was not a Jew. The Jews didn't like Herod. And Herod was ruled by Rome. Rome was the ruler over all of the inhabited earth. So in a sense, Israel still saw itself in exile. Okay, we're back in the land, but we're not worshiping freely. We don't have a Davidic king. We're not experiencing material blessings at all. There was so much disease and so much poverty. And so the people are waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting and they're longing for Messiah to come. Some have even read the books of Daniel and Jeremiah and they've begun to piece it together and they're saying, you know, I think it might be now. I think it might be soon that God's sending his anointing one and they're hopeful and they're waiting and they're remembering the new covenant promises that God is going to restore the physical blessings and he's going to restore the spiritual blessings and they're anticipating and they're waiting. And so when you think about the gospels, And the people to whom Jesus is speaking, they are a people who are waiting for promise fulfillment. Promises have been made, but they haven't been fulfilled. And so they're anxious. How do they get prepared to receive the promises? 
I want you to turn to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, chapter 4. Now, if you hit Matthew, turn back one page. Malachi, chapter 4. You may recall that um, if you've been here for a little while, uh, a couple years ago, we studied Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Malachi. People came back into the land. They rebuilt the temple slowly, got it done. Then they rebuilt the walls. They're worshiping, but their worship was not pure. They were not wholehearted in their worship. So Malachi came and he stirred up the people to give God their whole hearts. And these are the last words that God delivered through his prophet to the people. Verse 4, chapter 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb, or Sinai, for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to the fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Instead, I want to bless you, so I'm going to send you Elijah. He's going to restore you. He's going to prepare you. So when John the Baptist showed up on the scene 400 years later, he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And you know what he preached? He preached the law. Okay? He didn't preach 1 Corinthians 15. God's Messiah is going to die, be buried, and rise from the dead. He preached the law. He was a voice crying in the wilderness, as Isaiah 40 says, preparing the people leading them to repentance because they thought that they were obeying the law because they're just obeying the law in a sense on the surface, the external, because that's what their leadership did. There was superficial obedience and John the Baptist is driving them deeper and then Jesus comes and he begins to preach and what does he preach? He preaches the law. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say don't lust. You've heard it said, don't murder. I say, don't hate. Because what God really wants is he wants your whole heart, not just your external conformity, not just the conformity of your outward behavior that people see, but God wants your whole heart. And so as John began to preach and Jesus began to preach, they were driving the people to a sense of desperation. We can't obey like that. We need Messiah to come. We need a new covenant. And so Jesus came with a very specific mission. Okay? That's the second point of the context that I want you to get. Jesus came with a very specific mission. Turn just one page to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. Now, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I'm just curious. Uh, who has their quiet times in the genealogies? <laughs> I don't. Uh, you know, you hit Matthew 1 or Luke 4. Oh, skip, 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 skip. Okay, let's get on to the good stuff. You're missing out. Now you're missing out. Maybe there are a few names that uh, maybe they don't really grab you, but Matthew 1.1, okay, focus, pay attention. Matthew 1.1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the anointed one, title for king, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay. All of the gospels are set in the context of the covenant promises God made to Israel. Jesus is God's anointed one. He's God's king. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. Matthew in particular will portray Jesus as the perfect Israelite. Where Israel failed, Jesus will succeed. Where Israel failed to obey the law, Jesus will live a life of perfect righteousness under the law. 
and not just the externals of the law, but the heart of the law. Where Israel failed to be a light to all nations, Jesus will be a light to all nations. He's the perfect Israelite, and he's the son of David. He's the king coming back. And so the gospel in the gospels is Jesus Christ as fulfillment of all of God's promises. Hey, let me map this out for you specifically. First, he came to offer himself as the Davidic king to Israel. Look in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28. Matthew 11 verse 28. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why might they have been weary and heavy laden? Because there were, if you read the gospels, I hope you notice that there's an incredible incidence of physical disease, demonic possession, poverty. In Israel, it it was hard to make a living. It was hard to exist. There were people everywhere who were hurting. And the the spiritual leadership, the shepherds, were devouring the people rather than loving and serving the people. And so Jesus comes and he says, I'm the good shepherd. Come to me because my yoke, it's light. I'll carry it for you. My burden is easy. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, I'm your king. You know, and some of the people got it, but it wasn't the rich and it wasn't the powerful. It was usually the poor and the blind and the diseased who said, have mercy on me, son of David. A lot of times it was the Gentiles, the Canaanite woman, Cornelius, a Gentile, uh, commander. It, it, was, it was people you wouldn't expect who said, you're son of David. We, we got it. You're the king. You're the one who's going to restore all of these promises. And what were the promises? Well, they were both physical and material. They were political, but they were also spiritual. And when Jesus came, he was focused first and foremost on the spiritual, okay, on restoring them to relationship with God. I want you to turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 4. And verse 16, Luke 4, verse 16, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It says, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book, and he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of our Lord. That's a a quote from Isaiah chapter 61 about God's Messiah. But what's interesting when Jesus stands up and he quotes this passage is that he he folds up the scroll, he rolls it back up and hands it back to the attendant, and and he stops actually in the middle of the sentence. There's actually no comma, no semicolon, anything. He just stops in the middle of the sentence. And he says, this is all that's being fulfilled right now. Set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And in Isaiah, it goes on. Does anyone know what it says? It says, and the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus doesn't quote that because that's not why he came. He didn't come to wipe out the Romans. But what did Israel most want from him in the first century? 
Well, yeah, yeah, the spiritual is all great, but would you crush Rome for us? (laughs) And when they began to realize that Jesus wasn't there to crush Rome, and when they began to see him being oppressed by the rulers and the leadership and seemingly powerless, and they take him into captivity, what do they say? This is not the kind of Messiah we want. This is not the kind of Messiah we expected or we need. We want a Messiah who's strong and powerful and he can throw off the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests and all of Rome. But look at him there. They're beating him and he's doing nothing. He's weak. He's lowly. We don't want him. Give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. Crucify him. And God knew that was going to happen. That's the third reason Jesus came. He came to be rejected. He made a legitimate offer of himself as king, but he knew they would reject him. Carl read earlier, Jesus said, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, because this is why I came. Because in being rejected, I can pay the price for all of sin so that ultimately I can restore all all people to a relationship with God and reconcile all of creation back to God. He came to be rejected. It was not an accident. He was not crucified because he was weak and powerless. He chose to go to the cross. As Peter says in his sermon, this was the predetermined plan of God that Jesus would be crucified by the hands of evil men. You put him to death, but God knew what was happening. He came to become a perfect sacrifice for sin. He lived an absolutely perfect and sinless life so that God could look upon him and say, the sacrifice of that one man is adequate for the sins of all of the rest of you. All people, all times. Forever. Because he was the perfect sacrifice. Finally, he came to inaugurate a new covenant. What could not be fulfilled through the powerlessness of the old covenant, Jesus was willing to set aside because he fulfilled it and he lived righteously and he fulfilled the requirements of the law. He paid for sin that had been done under the law so he could set it aside. It could become obsolete as we're told in Hebrews and he could start a new covenant. And so he sat down with his disciples right before he's going to the cross and he said, you see this bread? You may not get it now. You really don't understand it. I'm aware of that. But in a little while, you will. You're going to break this bread, and I want you to do it often. Because when you break it, you're going to remind yourselves that I suffered for you. And then I want you to take this cup, and every time you drink it, I want you to remind yourselves that this blood established a new covenant. It laid the foundation for a new covenant. What you couldn't accomplish in your own strength, I have done for you so that if you are in me, you are in right relationship with God. It's the new covenant. And so he laid the foundation for all of the future. The point of all this is that all of our hope is in Jesus Christ. The gospels point us to the fact that all of our hope is in Jesus Christ. If you are Jewish, your hope is in Jesus as Messiah. If you are African, your hope is in Jesus as Messiah. If you are Haitian, Your hope is in Jesus as Messiah. If you're Texan, your hope is in Jesus as Messiah. All of our hope is in Jesus. That's why we're going to study the Gospels. We're going to turn our attention, our hope back to Jesus. That's where our hope lies. 
Yesterday, I had a really remarkable day. It was an amazing day. It was an absolutely exhausting day yesterday. I participated in a funeral and a wedding all in one day, and I've never done that before. I've never even, I've never even gone to a funeral and a wedding in one day. And you know, the, the emotional twists and turns of being in a funeral and a wedding in one day... Um, it's hard to put all those pieces together, honestly. I, I, uh, I was really, really tired last night. I came back up here. I was kind of finishing up, thinking about what I wanted to say today, and I was processing the day, and I thought, boy, you know, this day really actually ties together all of my thoughts. The funeral was for uh, Lane Cole. Uh, we've, we've been praying for Lane uh, he first started battling cancer seven years ago, and our church has been praying for Lane for seven years. I've known Lane since uh, I was in high school. When I was a senior, he was a freshman. I knew both of his brothers, so I've known Lane a long, a long, long time. Uh, he's, a, he's a good friend. And uh, his wife, I knew her before they met. She was really involved in college ministry stuff, and then she worked on our staff at church. Uh, really a dear, dear family to me. And it was, it was just a a beautiful memorial service. Everybody who spoke was just, oh man, right on point. And the thing that came out was Lane just lived a great life. He, he died at 42, but he lived this incredibly rich life. And even till the end of his life, he, he was not in fear and he was not complaining. He was staying on exactly the same path that he had stayed on most of his life, from the day that he had trusted Christ. He was still, uh, somebody commented, uh, Lane had spent time with the Lord for 17 years without ever missing any single day for 17 years. I can't say that. But apparently he went to a trip uh, in Ukraine and he saw they didn't even have Bibles and it really convicted him of, you know, he has a Bible and he doesn't even spend time with it. And from that moment on, he spent time with the Lord every day for 17 years. And his life, his, his life was really centered on Christ. His hope was in Christ. He, he didn't face the day of his death with fear because he was looking at Christ. He's looking at the future in Christ. And so we celebrated Lane's life. We're looking back and we were celebrating. It was really a great celebration of hope in Christ. Hope in Christ. Then I got in my truck and I drove across town and I spent about 10 minutes trying to shift gears emotionally. We're about to go into a wedding. And I walked in the wedding, and I was doing wedding for uh, a girl that's, um, I've known her since she was born. She's not a girl now, you know, the age of half of you in the audience. She's not a girl. She's 23, 24 years old, but I've known her since she was born, because she was born on my birthday. And so when she was little, we used to have uh, birthday parties that we'd share together. We'd go out and get ice cream. And um, so I've known her a long, long time. It was really special, really sweet. And she's marrying, uh, her name's Ashley Beck, and she married Jesse Ortega. And both of them have uh, served Jesus Christ. Their lives have been centered on Christ. And so we look back on Lane's life and we saw hope in Christ. And then doing this wedding ceremony, we're looking to their future. And their future is based on hope in Christ. They, they're, they're marrying because they want to serve Christ together. And I thought, wow, these two really actually do kind of go together in one day. Because the point is, our hope is in Christ. And maybe today, you don't know Christ. And so if you were contemplating your own funeral, 
and your future for eternity, it would be a little frightening because you don't know, do I have eternity secure? Is, am, I, am I going to be with God? It, can I know that? Can I be confident? All you have to do is turn to Christ and say, Jesus, thank you for paying for my sins. That, that, that's what faith is. Faith is just reaching out and receiving a gift. You're just saying, God, thank you for giving me Christ. Thank you for removing my debt. I accept eternal life. You can't earn it. Hey, men and women, you can't earn it. You can't be good enough. But Christ has been good enough and he accomplished eternal life for you. So he gives it to you as a gift. You reach out and you receive it and you say, thank you, God. And you can't lose it because you didn't earn it. It is eternally secure. And if you don't know Christ today, let me encourage you right where you're sitting, just say, God, thank you for Christ. I accept. Maybe you've walked with Christ for a lifetime, but your hope is not in Christ. Maybe your hope is in the major that you're pursuing and the great job you're going to get when you get out of here. Or maybe it's in the job that you have or the job that you hope to get. Or maybe it's in a person or family member. Maybe your hope is misplaced and you need to turn it to Christ because he is the only one who's secure. The gospels point us to Christ because he's the fulfillment of all of God's promises. As Paul says, in Christ, everything God promised is yes. So as we close, I want you just to turn your attention and your focus to Christ. Is, is he your hope? That's where we're going to be focusing our attention this semester. So let's just take a few moments and turn our attention to Jesus Christ. Are we hoping in him? And then I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us Jesus. I thank you, Father, that we live in a day and age where we can learn of him and and know him. Father, I pray as we begin our study in the Gospels that you would really just peel away the, the false hopes that we often cling to and we would find our security and our relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for these men and women, I pray for myself that you would pour out your richest blessings upon us as we study your word, that our hearts would be soft, receptive, open, that you would transform us into the very image of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you, and we will see you next week.